think that's it. Yeah, said my name is Robert Birchall, and uh, today I'm going to be speaking on uh, the book of Malachi. So uh, I'm going to get my notes up, and uh, we'll go from there. Now, Malachi is a book that you'll probably recognize that if you, uh, if you turn a little too soon where, where we've been uh, studying uh, right before Matthew. Malachi ends the Old Testament. So I'll give you a chance to uh, flip there in your Bibles. And this is a weird occurrence. Uh, we usually on Sunday speak from the New Testament uh, or bring a lesson from the New Testament. Uh, but I, I felt led to look at the book of Malachi. Malachi is a relatively short book. It's four chapters. took me about 11 minutes and 50 seconds. Not that I was timing myself. Um, and not to brag. Uh, but it is a fairly short book. Uh, we're not going to be reading all of it today. Um, but there are some good foundational things that I, I thought were in there. The book of Malachi sets us up in this uh, sort of realm of ending the Old Testament. And after Malachi closes his book, there is a period of time uh, before the New Testament begins, uh, before we see Jesus come on the scene. That 400 years uh, is often called the silent years where God necessarily doesn't reveal himself. Um, there are still things going on with the, Israel, or the, the Hebrew people. There are things that are setting up Jesus to come. But Jesus is delaying his time from the end of the Old Testament to the New Testament. And if you've been with us throughout the book of Matthew, you'll understand why. Uh, he has a designate, designated time in which he needs to show up. He has a day, a time when he needs to lead himself to the cross, or be led to the cross. So, as Jack has been leading us through Matthew in the preparation of the Messiah to be led to his death, um, I wanted to know, well, what happened before that? Were there just a group of people chilling out in Jerusalem, waiting for this Messiah? And what was their purpose? Why, why were they there? Why were they in Jerusalem? And where did they come from? Well, these were the Israelite people. Um, and it might seem like a weird question. Why did Jesus need to come? Why did Jesus need to come at that time? Um, but if you know anything about the Israelites and their struggles and their continual turn to God and then turn away, you'll understand why they needed a Savior, why they needed an ultimate protection and an ultimate answer to their continual pattern of turning away and coming back. Malachi ministered about the same time as Nehemiah, so uh, it sets up this timeline, so I'll go ahead and set up the timeline um, of the Israelite people, starting with uh, Abraham. You have his reign, you have the Hebrew people um, coming out of the wilderness, Moses leads them, and then you have this period of time where they go, oh God, you are our leader. Moses dies, Aaron takes over, and then you have this other set of where they go, you are our leader, but actually we want a human leader. So God sets up judges, and then he sets up these three kings. And then they, get, they say, yeah, we love you, God, but we really want a true leader. We want to we be like the other nations. And so they split. After the three monarchs, they split into the Democrats, and the, I mean the um, northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. <laughs> they couldn't agree on anything either. Um, and so they split. Uh, the tribes of the Hebrew people split into the northern and the southern kingdom. And then there was a reign of of terrible kings uh, where, yeah, where they would, they would turn away from God. 
And then a prophet would come and point out their, their faults, and then they would go back to God. And then they would continue to fall away from God. And that's where we find Malachi and subsequently also Nehemiah writing around the same time. Um, he's the last writer to Israel. You could think of this as one last attempt of God to say, Children, listen to me. Why have you turned away from me? I've sent you into exile. You have been conquered by people you've defeated before. Will you please listen and turn away? And this is Malachi. Wow, right? Okay, good. <laughs> and then after that, after Malachi again closes his book, there's this silence. Until we hear a voice in the wilderness calling out, make way a path for the Lord. And this is the ultimate uh, solution to these problem children. So, is anyone else interested to see what God has to say right before he goes silent and then brings the, yeah, me too. Okay, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Lord, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you're merciful and that you give us chance after chance after chance. God, I thank you that you've given me second chances, just like you gave the Israelites. And because you sent your ultimate redeeming Savior, Jesus, I can be adopted into that Israelite family, and I can have chance after chance after chance. And I thank you for that. Praise you and thank you. Amen. All right. So, book of Malachi. Malachi writes his book, and I believe there are two sort of foundational truths. If you would think of as an English teacher, these are kind of his two theses uh, that he has for his book, that he has to the Israelite people. Um, and the first one is that God loves us unconditionally, and that will never change. God loves us, and that will never change. The second one is that following Jesus demands everything. Following Jesus demands everything, and I would add a tagline onto that. That is impossible to understand. That is next to impossible to understand. The way I see that Malachi up, sort of applies these two theses, uh, or these two foundational truths, uh, are in two ways that the Israelites were messing up. That would be family relationships, both marriages and parenting, and in money, something that we don't ever have problems with in this day and age, right? It's something that was just exclusive to the Israelites. No, absolutely not. Those are, one, those are two of the things that kind of give us the most trouble, can give us the most division in the church, and even the most division amongst ourselves, is how we deal with family relationships and money. So, um, kind of going on with the first foundational truth. God loves us and that doesn't change. Take a look at uh, Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, and I'm reading out of the New Living Translation because uh, I'm a millennial and that's what I like to read out of. Verse 2 says, I have always loved you, says the Lord, but you retort, really? How have you loved us? And the Lord replies, this is how I showed my love for you. I loved your ancestor Jacob, but I rejected his brother Esau. And devastated his hill country. I turned Esau's inheritance into a desert for jackals. Next, if you could, flip over to uh, chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. I'll be doing a little bit of jumping today. Not physically, but in the books. 6 and 7 read, I am the Lord and I do not change. That is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. 
Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. See, God loves us, and that never changes. God loves the Israelite people. He chose Jacob over Esau. No matter how many times the Israelite people have left the faith, denied God, or hurt that relationship, God is a passionate covenant love for his people. See, this covenant love was set up with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where God appears to Abraham in a dream, and he says, hey, guess what, Abraham? You know how you're old? You know how uh, you haven't had any children? Guess what? You're going to be the father of many nations. I promise you that. And Abraham sees this in a dream, and that covenant right there that Abraham makes with God is still true to this day. Abraham is the father of many nations. You and I, if you're a believer, we are a part of that nation. We are a part of the fold of Abraham. We've been adopted in. And so as such, if you're a follower, God loves you, and that will never change. Now Malachi's message as we continue can seem very harsh if you first don't understand this message, that God has an absolute love for you. Now that love can seem a bit harsh, Sometimes. It's very hard sometimes. As a, a, a new father, I have a two-year-old son, Ren. Many of you are, are familiar with him, um, but he's very strong-willed. I have no idea where he gets this from. Uh, I'm just kidding. I know exactly. I look in the mirror, and that's where he got it from. But if I love my son, I need to discipline him, much like I was disciplined as a child, because I don't want him to turn out like a bum. I don't want him to turn out like a jerk. I love him, and I want the best for him, so I discipline him. And Malachi talks about this discipline. And it can seem harsh if you don't understand what true loving discipline looks like. God wants our best, and he loves us, so he disciplines us. And he disciplines the Israelites too. The second thesis, following God demands everything. This is the argument I'm making. Uh, if you look down further in chapter 3, verses 18... I would say that if there's any one verse in Malachi uh, that gives rise to kind of the purpose of this book, it's 3.18. It says, Then you will see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. I'll read it again. Then you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. See, there's a distinction between those who serve God, who are true believers, and then those who think they are true believers. They don't realize how far they've strayed away. Now, there's a, there's a definition, and as I was trying to think of this, I, I, a thought popped into my head. Uh, many of you may know I'm a teacher at HPA, but I also coach swimming, and I actually enjoy that much more than teaching. Um, it's coaching, because it's still teaching, but it's in an activity, and I'm very active. I think I have ADD, but... Uh, so I love coaching. However, I was a swimmer in high school, and that's where I got my passion for swimming. At the end of a year uh, of swimming, or at the end of the season, you come to uh, the state competition, uh, and it happens at this gorgeous pool. It's a collegiate pool, um, and it's a wonderful facility. Um, but you have trained the entire season to get ready for this one event. And you jump in the pool, and you warm up, just like you would before any other meet. Your body is ready. Your mind is ready. You are ready to perform at a high level. And you get out of the water, and the interesting thing about this collegiate pool is that the NCAA says that 70 degrees is the appropriate temperature for both uh, swimming your peak 
and uh, where you don't get hypothermia. If you go below 70, that's right around where you would expect hypothermia. This pool is very cold. You jump in, and it's one where if you've ever jumped in cold water, it takes your breath away. But as a team, we would warm up, as this is a, a normal thing, and then we got out, and we would change out of our, our warm-up suits, and we'd get into our competition suits, and you would touch your legs and your knees, and you go, I can't feel that. I'm warm. I feel like my joints can move. My, I've warmed up. I've done everything else. I'm numb. But it's okay, because I've done this before. And I'm just numb. And I would argue that that's where the Israelite people are. And I would almost argue that that's where I am sometimes. That I'm comfortably numb. That I'm okay with the condition I'm in because it snuck up on me. I jumped into the water. I did what I usually do. And I was not aware of what was happening and what was changing with me. And I think that's where the Israelite people were. If we look at, uh, if we continue looking at Malachi 1, so go back to Malachi 1, it's going to be up on the screen, 6 through 10. Malachi 1, 6 through 10 uh, says, The Lord of heaven's armies says to the priest, A son honors his father, and a servant respects his master. If I am your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? You have shown contempt for my name, but you ask, Have we ever shown contempt for your name? See the cluelessness or the numbness there that they had? Verse 7, you have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. Then you ask, how have we defiled the sacrifices? Notice the numbness again. You defile them by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. When you give blind animals the sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Go ahead. Beg God to be merciful to you, but then you bring that kind of offering. Why should he show you any favor at all, asks the Lord of heaven's armies. How I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and I will not accept your offerings. See, I would argue that God expects and demands everything. He set that out a long time ago. Uh, in Mosaic law, that was part of uh, what was going on. Um, that you brought sacrifices and you brought the best. You gave your best. Whether it was a crop, whether it was an animal, whether it was a service, you brought your best. And he goes, this isn't even worthy for your governor. A human wouldn't even take this. And you give it to your God? Wow. How pathetic. I'm not going to take your sacrifice. No, because I demand the best. That's what God says. But isn't that us sometimes? I know it's me. Where I go, hey, God, I really need your help this week. I'm tired. I've got a newborn, and I've got to teach four lessons to a hard class. Oh, remember that time I prayed before dinner with my sons? Hey, remember that? I I gave you that. I gave you that part of my time. God goes, no. Yeah, I'm glad you did that. Where were you the other times? Where were you when I asked you to be an active participant in this covenant relationship I have with you? If you read on 11 through 14, 11 through 14 says, But my name is honored by people of other nations. 
From morning till night, all around the world, they offer sweet incense and pure offerings in honor of my name. For my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But you dishonor my name with your actions. By bringing contemptible food, you're saying, it's all right to defile the Lord's table. You say it's too hard to serve the Lord, and you turn up your noses at my commands, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Think of it. Animals that are stolen and crippled and sick are being presented as offerings. Should I accept such offerings as these? Asks the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who promises to give a fine ram from his flock and then sacrifices a defective one to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and my name is feared among the nations. See, other nations knew the power of God. They had a written history. The Jewish people weren't the only ones. The Bible isn't the only history. The other people knew that the power of the Hebrew nation. Now, yes, it was conquered, but they knew the history, and they knew this was a powerful God. And in fact, they, they even incorporated some of that God worship into their own perverse uh, uh, sort of theologies, if you will. So they knew, and even they're honoring the Lord of the universe. And the Hebrew goes, eh, you know, our God, the one we serve, the only one, he's okay with second and third best. He's just okay with that. God goes, no, you're embarrassing me. Stop it. And then he goes on, and I love this part. He says, oh no, I am the creator of all. You will bring me your best. Oops. My notes went away. Oh no, they're there. Computers. He says, no, you you bring me your best. God demands everything. So we work hard to impress God. We work hard and we do things in our activities and try on our own ability to impress him. And isn't that us? We, we do these little things and all the time knowing that God didn't command us to do the little things. He didn't tell us to, to do just the littles. No, he just wants our heart. He wants our heart going after him. The same way he wanted Abraham going after him, that covenant relationship. We're going to talk about marriage here in a second, and it's the same idea. It's the, it's the heart going after it. And I would argue that God just doesn't want to be first in our life. He wants to be only in our life. If you will, flip over to uh, a new book, not too far, Matthew ten thirty seven. Matthew 10, 37 says, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What's more precious than a son or a daughter? I have two of them, and they are my joy. I love my sons. But God wants to be only. I have to to realize that. God demands everything. God demands my love and it to be only. All right. So those are the two theses. God loves us and that doesn't change. And that God demands everything. And that's that's a hard one. First way I see this applied is in marriage. If you will, go back to Malachi 2, 13 through 16. Yep. (laughs) You better be good with the sword drills. All right. Malachi 2, 13 through 16 says, Here's another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, Why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. 
Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young. But you have been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and in spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful with your wife. Malachi's uh, addressing what was happening in this time with the corruption of marriage. What was happening is as they returned from their exiled nations, uh, the Israelites were coming back to Jerusalem, were allowed to come back. Uh, and who was taking their place? Well, other exiled people. They were just rotated around in the land. So the, the Hebrew men would come back. They would find whatever reason to divorce their wife, their good Hebrew women, and they would take these exotic women who were already in their lands, and they would take them into their family. And they would make families with them. And then the women would bring in with them the polluted, theoc- like, different traditions and cultures and theology from their own religions. And the male would go, yeah, you have a God who's Baal, is that right? Yeah. Well, you pray to him for crops, I pray to Yahweh for crops. That's the same God, yeah, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do that. So these women were polluting the families. And so then comes this terrible idea of, okay, I'll just divorce, and this marriage union means nothing. The foreign wives would drag the whole family unit down. Uh, And so we we see this in the book of Nehemiah. Now remember, Nehemiah runs kind of concurrent with what's going on at the time. So in Nehemiah 13, 23 through 25, it says, Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashad, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashad or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor do you take their daughters in marriage for your own sons or for yourselves. You guys catch that? The kids couldn't even speak Hebrew. They wouldn't have any way, if they didn't speak Hebrew or know the Jewish traditions, to know what God did for their family. For their people, how many times God had shown up, or even how God would have loved them. So, that leads me to kind of this question of, what's the purpose of marriage? What does Malachi say the purpose of marriage is for? Well, I would argue that marriage exists for really one reason, to display God. Now, marriage is used to display God, and it's to put the highest meaning of sacrifice and love shown through Christ and his church. See, our marriage is supposed to be a reflection of Christ and his love for us, his church. God never leaves his church. Sure, he goes silent, but he never leaves them. He never abandons them. That covenant love that was set up a thousand years ago before Malachi is still true 3,000 years later with us. That God will never abandon us. God loves us, and that doesn't change. 
Marriage isn't about seeking your wants and needs and pleasures. And you don't bail out when things change. God didn't bail out, leave the Israelites when they changed their hearts. He said, no, return to me. I know you're going after the other gods. Please return to me. I've set a covenant up with you. Jesus, arguably God, is more important than our marriage. Staying married is how we function in marriage. Sorry, staying married and how we function in marriage is more about seeing Jesus exalted and demonstrating that he is only in my life above myself, above my needs, and above my wants. Showing the same commitment to my wife that Jesus shows for me when I am unfaithful to him, when I turn away from him, when I sin in front of him and try to hide it and act like he doesn't see it. He always takes me back. Look at Luke 14, 26. I want you to notice before we read, see the contrast between the passion you should have for him, God, in respect to others. This is Luke 14, 26. It says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father or mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Hating yourself is hard. Hating someone else, eh, arguably a little bit easier, but hating yourself is hard. But God demands that in contrast to how much you love him, you should take yourself out of the situation. Why? Because he's only. He demands everything. Because I'm married, I continue to love my wife. I set a, com- a commitment or I, I set a covenant up before God. That was what we agreed on when I took her hand in marriage. I said before God that this is my wife and I will stay committed to my wife. And as a Christian, that means something. Because I didn't just make a promise to my wife. I made a promise to God. And I made a covenant with my wife to God. That if we are united, that we are united. And that God doesn't change. Now, I I would again then argue that you have to love and honor that commitment so that it doesn't have to be strained. It will be strained. The marriage with my wife has been strained. We have kids right now. It's absolutely strained. But my commitment to my wife is stronger than my happiness. And that's something that takes everything. I have to deny my human instinct to go, I'm not getting any sleep out of this. This isn't fun anymore. What what happened? And I got to go, oh, God, do you say that about me? No. You go, I loved you from the day I knew you, and I knew what you were going to do before you even did it, and I still loved you, and I still died for you, and I still made that commitment with you. Jesus is more important than your happiness in your marriage. Now, this, is, this seems very unlikely if you don't know him. Um, and it seems even less likely if you're opposed to Jesus. And I would encourage you that if you are that person in here and you go, this Robert guy's crazy. If he thinks that uh, uh, marriage isn't about happiness and love and wants and needs, 
yeah, it is crazy to someone who hasn't felt the love of Christ, who hasn't been saved from being a torturous person. So I would say you got to start there. you got to start with accepting God and experiencing the first thesis of Malachi, that God loves you and that doesn't change. Even as believers, if you don't know him very well, it's going to be hard to be putting aside your happiness, your wants, your needs to demonstrate that covenant, to look like a mirror of Christ in the church. All right. I said we are going over a couple things in family relationships. Children, a little bit easier. No, just kidding. Uh, go over to uh, chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2, 15 says, uh, Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife in body and spirit? You are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart, remain loyal to the wife of your youth. Why do we want children if you want children? Or why do you have children if you do have them? I often think about that sometimes. Uh, when I'm giving my son something to eat and he throws it on the floor. Or uh, I have to wake up 30 times in the night with our new one. But why, why did I have children? Malachi says to produce godly offspring. That's the reason you have children. It isn't something to fulfill. It's, you don't have children to, to fill this hole in your heart. If you want something to love you, get a dog. They're much easier, and they will love you more faithfully than a child will. It's true. You can leave them at home. No. <laughs> you can't with children. I, I said you can't with children. Okay. God always blesses those who will then be a blessing to others. See, that's why as godly parents, Amanda and I, Amanda's my wife, Amanda and I had children so that eventually they can be a blessing to the world. Because that's why my parents had me, so that I can try to be a blessing. I can try to go after God's heart and be a blessing to the world. God gives us children so we can raise them to be a blessing to the world. But guess what? He wants all of our children. He wants every part of my child. The continuation of faith depends on us training the next generation, the generation that's in the classrooms, in these classrooms back here. It requires us training them. Well, they were in here. If you will, flip over to Judges chapter 2, 10 through 11. Judges 2, 10 through 11 says, After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. If my children don't know right from wrong, who's at fault? Me. If our children here don't know the word of God, who's at fault? The church a little bit, but guess who has to answer on the day of judgment? It's parents. If I did not do my best to raise my sons in the way that they should go, I have to answer for that. Because they're the next generation, and God calls them. So as parents, do you blame the church? Uh, you, I guess you could, but you could also step up. Do you blame the youth programs? Uh, you could step up. It could be, it could be, but ultimately you are to answer for them. 
churches and parents work together to raise the next generation. And here's another thing, kind of a, a tangent. There's something in the church and, and with society now that we've raised children to be careful and safe their entire life. And I would argue that that's not biblical. I would argue that staying safe, being careful, being well, watchful is biblical, but we need to stop raising our kids to be safe and careful. What do I say to my son as he's running down the hallway, head down, arms back, full speed, right into my thigh? Careful. <laughs> no, I don't say faster. <laughs> I say, hey, son, careful. You're going to hurt yourself. Now, I do want him to watch out for immediate dangers. I'm, I'm not some psychotic parent. However, God demands everything. Dangerous, godly choices are exactly what Jesus did. He knew he was going to die. God sent him in the world to die so that he could save us. And if God demands everything, then he demands my children too. This is hard personally because I get to see firsthand as a high school teacher the risks my sons will be put up against. But I have to believe that God has a plan for them. Because he loves them more than I can ever. He absolutely loves them. And I know that because he loves me. And he watches out for me. Jesus didn't live safely. So why should my kids? Why does God call my kids to safety when he didn't call Jesus to safety? His own son. Now the cost is very real. And it's felt in this crowd. That our kids, your kids... My sons may have to live dangerously someday. They may move away permanently. There may be Christmases where I don't have my sons with me. My kids may even die reaching those that are lost. And I've got to be okay with that. I've got to know that God has a plan for them because God demands everything. Now, my kids aren't in the service right now. Um, they will be the ones that are next in this service, though. They're going to be brought up in this church. And we as teachers, myself included, have to be raising the next generation knowing that. That they're going to be sitting in this seat. That they're going to be facing the very reality of what this world has to throw at them. Parents, are we ready? Malachi asks that. Lastly, money talks a little bit about money in chapter 3. We'll get to it in a second. But what's the purpose of money as you're turning there? Why does God give us wealth? Because Israel didn't know. Israel didn't know why God had trusted them with wealth. If we read in Malachi 3, verses 8 through 10. 8 through 10 says, Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me the tithes and the offerings due to me. You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, so that there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. We aren't robbing God when we don't give him 10%. That's what a tithe meant. A tithe literally translates to 10%. Um, we aren't robbing God when we don't give him the 10%. We're robbing God when we give him the 10% and then go, here, God, here's the 10% I owe you. 
the rest I get to keep with. No. No, that's the attitude that Israel had that they were robbing God with. We think the rest is ours. When God owns it all. God owns everything. My money, my wealth, my retirement, which is far away, unfortunately. My life, my family, even my health. He owns it all. And I'm a fool if I think that I own even a little bit of it. Because it could blow away today. Austin brought this up last week, uh, that there was a fearful time, and if you guys remember 2008, uh, the recession, and even just a few months ago, we were faced with the time, uh, or currently, trillions of wealth disappeared almost overnight. God can do that. God can absolutely do that. Now, did he do that? It doesn't matter. It's all his to do with what he wants. Now, the Old Testament giving, we go into the storehouse, it was a set up uh, as their welfare system. They weren't just giving a 10%. See, uh, in, in Mosaic Law, they gave a, a first tithe, and then they gave a second tithe, so it's like 20%. Um, and then every third year, they gave what was called a tithe of the poor. So if you calculated it out, um, throughout the life of a Hebrew, you gave about 22 to 25% of your wealth. Uh, it was given back to the temple. Now, the storehouse tithe was given to the temple, and then the leaders of the temple would redistribute this tithe uh, outward. So to different ministries, to different peoples. Um, Calvary Hillside does the exact same thing. You take in the tithes. Jack is able to take a team. God's led this team, and they're able to bless another person because of the wealth that's come in through this church. We're able to help church plants, both globally and domestically because of the wealth of this church and what God has called upon this people group to trust him in. And that's something I'm so proud of, that God demands everything. And the people of Calvary Hillside says, yep, everything. This is a fascinating concept, too, because uh, this is where God says, uh, test him. We see later when Jesus is in the desert, uh, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Um, And that's kind of a direct command. Um, But this is where God says, test him. Test him directly. Just see how big his arms are to give you wealth. That's happening right now in Calvary Hillside. God has opened up his floodgates, and we're like, okay, we've got to figure something out, God. You're telling us something. And sometimes that wealth, or sometimes that giving back that God does to us is not in the form of wealth. It could be. But most often it's not. It's in a blessing. Sometimes that blessing is just in being a cheerful giver. And again, this looks weird. All of these look weird to an outside believer who says, church is a a money-hungry machine. That looks weird because maybe they haven't felt the first concept that God loves them and that doesn't change. But this is how you will tell those true believers in the end. So in a wrap-up, God addresses these two areas right before he goes silent. Uh, and, and of course, he doesn't disappear, but he, just, he goes silent. He goes, hey, this is where I see your weakness. This is where I see where you can improve. And wouldn't you know it, that's someplace that we have weakness and an area to improve. I don't know about you, but I do in my life. These areas can give us the most challenges as we go forward. But guess what? They can bring us the greatest fulfillment and blessing 
and joy we've ever felt in our life. But it's these areas that God calls us to take command of in our life. Malachi 3.18 says, Then you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Which are you? What do your life indicators say you are? Are you righteous or are you wicked? Are you a true follower or are you not? Our marriages should look different. Child raising should look different. We use money to glorify God and not ourselves. Be generous givers. Understanding that what is mine doesn't belong to me at all. And if you're sitting here, you're going, ah, oh, it's too late. I've been divorced 20 years. Oh, my kids are old and grown and don't talk to me. Or they're, they're going on a path that's just not what God is calling to them. If it wasn't too late for the Israelites at 430 B.C., it's not late for you. It's not late for the church at Calvary Hillside. However, as we continue looking ahead for the hour that our master draws near, how are we going to be found? Are we going to be found complaining like the Israelites and turning back into our wicked ways? Or are we going to be found on our knees praying for those things? Knowing that God loves us and that he demands everything. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, just how much you love us, God. I thank you for this book uh, and, and how much it's spoken to me. I thank you for uh, just this silence that the Israelites were able to stew on this before you sent your ultimate sacrifice. Thank you so much for that. And as we get ready in this season of Easter to realize that, um, I just pray that this year our hearts would be open to hearing from you again. Um, and that we would realize that you do love us unconditionally and that you ask for us all. I pray these things in your name. Amen.